Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig. I'm the Executive Director here at the Initiative. And today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Johnston, our Senior Fellow in our Education Program. Hi, Michael. Hi there. We want to talk about a new government document. It's called Te Huri Hanganui, a blueprint for transformative system shift. That sounds promising. What is it? Well, it's a document about how we need to change our education system to address what is certainly a problem, which is that uh, Māori students don't do as well in our education system, certainly as we would like, or as well as, as New Zealand European students. That, that seems to be the context of the document. The document itself also gives us a historical context, and I found the statement on page five of the report quite interesting, mm -hmm. and maybe just for the benefit of our listeners, we could just go through this almost sentence by sentence and just interpret what they mean. Sure. So so the, the first thing it does is contend that before colonization, um, Māori education was a, a very collective thing, which is believable enough because it was a, it was quite a, a collective culture. So that that part seems likely to be true enough. Yeah, um, just to just to read from the document, perhaps. Uh, yeah. Let me just do it. Prior to colonization, Māori considered education as a collective process of gathering, learning, and sharing knowledge about one's place in the world and relationships with all things. It was also seen as a lifelong process of whenua kite whenua, from life to death. And over successive generations, the colonial education system socialized a different dominant narrative. So if we just translate this a little bit, it sounds like everything in New Zealand education was fine until colonization. Well, uh, apparently. Of course, there was no place called New Zealand at that point. And there was no education system. Uh, and there probably. was no education system as such in, in the sense that we now understand it. Uh, because there was no national government or or anything like that, there were. But the way it is phrased, it sounds like a paradise lost. Uh, it does sound like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Which is perhaps a little bit misleading, at least when we're talking well, about an education system. Well, well, that's right. I mean, there was, there was no education system, and I think you know one thing to highlight at the outset is what is fundamentally different, probably between Mataranga Māori, which is the the Māori system of understanding and, and knowledge and what we might very loosely term, you know, the Western disciplines. And I hesitate to use the term Western because actually things like science and mathematics were not invented in, in Europe. They had inputs from the Arabic world, from India, China, across Eurasia, in fact. But if we, if we think about those disciplines of mathematics and science and, and you know, his, history as, a, as an academic discipline, one of the important characteristics of all of those disciplines is their tendency towards the universal. In other words, we, we're looking for theories and ideas that explain as wide an ambit of phenomena as possible. You know, when you look at physics, for example, physics wants to treat, to the greatest extent possible, everything the same everywhere in the universe. So an atom is an atom and a photon is a photon and, and, and so on. So, and a science textbook is the same whether the science textbook is used in Korea, Canada, Mexico, or indeed New Zealand. Well, that, that's right. A scientific explanation for something is intended to be universal. That's right. Whereas Mataranga Māori is intended to be local. And, that, and that's a fundamental difference at the outset that we, we need to grapple with if we're going to sort of understand the relationship between what's being purported here in terms of Māori education prior to colonisation and what 
education is to us now. That's, of course, not the view of the authors of this document, and I just want to quote a little bit further. They write, Education became a vehicle to promote Western values, knowledge, and systems, actively suppressing the indigenous language, knowledge, culture, and ways of being. In this system, dominant Pākehā perspectives of independent success through education became normalized. Mm -hmm. Again, I think we need to translate a little bit what they mean. So the idea, which they say is a Western idea to progress in life through education, again, I, I really wonder whether this is a Western idea, hmm. that you progress in life by learning is something... Well, I, it's universally human. Universally human. That's, that's how humans have tried to progress in life. There's no culture which doesn't value learning. Uh, and, of course, the Māori culture values learning and, and, and knowledge. Uh, and so does the Japanese culture, and so does the Chinese Japanese culture, and, 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 yes, and they, every culture. Yeah, exactly. That, that's right. So from the days of the very first technology, since we first started to produce stone knives and, and simple tools, we have handed on that knowledge. And, and I guess, you know, we can look at human language as being the, the, the fundamental vehicle for, for the transmission of knowledge. It's not the only vehicle, but it's, it's what makes us human in many ways. But the way it is phrased in the document, it is almost a denigration of the very idea of progress. Yes, I think that's a that's fair comment. We probably should acknowledge that it is true that Māori language was suppressed in New Zealand schools Indeed. in the early 20th century, and, and we certainly wouldn't be in favour of, of, of that. Uh, and, and so there is an element of truth in, in what's here when, when they say that uh, Māori knowledge was colonised and, and for a time at least dominated by the Western worldview. That, that's a fair point. And, of course. Mm. Um, the authors of the document continue, those who demonstrated aptitude within the Pākehā view of the world succeeded and were subsequently privileged. Well, again, I mean, this is not a Pākehā thing. It is not a Western thing. If you progress through life because you have gained an education and you've gained skills, yes, you succeed almost irrespective of the culture you're in. Well, that's, that's true. I, I mean, what's also true is that the way in which you're educated needs to be relative to the culture in which you live. So in the Middle Ages, people, you know, learned the, the sets of skills and knowledge that they needed to survive and thrive in, in that environment. Just as prior to colonisation in, in New Zealand, Māori learned the knowledge and skills that they needed for that, uh, that lifestyle and that way of living. And now uh, things are rather different than they were then and, and children and young people, irrespective of their race or their cultural background, live in the same world. It's an increasingly globalised world. And here, I think, is where the document runs into some fundamental error when it, it characterises uh, what it calls Pākehā ways of knowing as being uh, kind of colonising or, or dominating out other ways of knowing. In actual fact, I go back to what I said before about the the, the disciplines of science and mathematics and and, and allied disciplines as being universal or tending towards the universal. It's quite astonishing, this document. I mean, what I'm quoting, what I've quoted so far, is all from page five of the document, and it sets out the historical context. And these were just the first three paragraphs. If you go a little bit further, on the same page, they talk about then um, the cumulative impact of this history is seen in the following, and then they say, it's devaluing and rejecting Mataranga Māori. We talked about this. The next bullet point is about inequitable outcomes. So they blame yes. inequality 
on the education system. So, so here is where we come, come into another fundamental error, or at least something that's highly questionable, which is the, the notion that the reason that Māori students don't do as well in our schools as New Zealand European students, for example, or Asian students, uh, is to do with the suppression of their culture. That, that's not uh, a completely implausible idea, but there's no evidence for it. And what is unfortunately true is that Māori students are more likely to live in poverty than students of, uh, of most other ethnicities. And we do know that there's a strong correlation between socioeconomic circumstances and educational outcomes. And in fact, most analyses that have been done uh, show that the underachievement of Māori students is explained by socioeconomic variables and there's no need to appeal to a, a cultural explanation. So once you account for these socioeconomic differences, the other differences disappear. Or, or, or they become vanishingly small. Hmm. Nevertheless, the document blames um, racism and bias for these inequitable outcomes. Yep. They then talk quite explicitly about racism and bias. And so... Basically, this document denigrates the whole education system as it exists. Yes, it seems to do that. And uh, then it proposes? Well, th well then it pro proposes that we need to transform the education system completely. And, and not just for Maori, for everybody. For, for everybody, that's right. So yeah. even for the students for whom the system currently actually delivers? Yes, uh, and, and rather than recognizing that actually what we need to do is find ways to make it deliver better for all students... Uh, they seem to want to pull it down and and and, and start it and again. Start it, start it again. Now, there's there's one thing that I I, I do want to say to, that slightly complicates the picture. Perhaps again, you know, we do need to recognise that our schools did discriminate against Māori in the past, and there is a legacy of that. Yes, because, because of course I talked before about family background and and socioeconomic variables, so. If you have parents and grandparents who have had a bad time at school and have had perhaps racist behaviour directed against them, then that is likely to have implications for how they see schools and how you then relate to the school yourself. And so I do think that we should take that seriously and, and understand that legacy. Having said that... Uh, the the disciplines of the the disciplines that we teach in schools now are the, are the ones that people need to survive and thrive in the world precisely because they have a universalizing uh, tendency. So we want to explain scientific phenomena in universal terms, mathematical phenomena, likewise in economics and history and and, and other disciplines. I completely agree on acknowledging these past injustices. I just wonder whether any of these past injustices might be a justification for creating new ones or for uh, moving well, away from um, established well, there, there, There's certainly no justification for, for destroying the, the, the system that gives our young people, irrespective of, of their ethnic background, the best chance to succeed in, in the world as it is. I noted, by the way... Um, that Fetu Cormac was one of the um, members of the working group putting together this document. Yes. And um, we had a, an interesting um, engagement with Fetu Cormac a few years ago when we published the results of a, a representative survey 
just trying to find out um, about the general knowledge level of New Zealanders. And mm-hmm. one of the questions was actually whether New Zealanders could name the continents. And we found a large proportion of New Zealanders who couldn't. And Fetu Cormic, who was the chair of the Principals Federation at the time, was asked to comment on that study and said, well, look, if you're teaching in a provincial um, region of New Zealand and the students are not interested in the continents, but they would like to find out about mutton birds, well, then they should find out about mutton birds and not learn about the continents. Is that the kind of direction of the system that these yeah, people I mean, have in mind? This, again, raises the, the problem that I, I first alluded to, which is that what we need is an education system that prepares our students to live in a globalised world. Uh, most students, when they leave school, will travel overseas at some point. Many will go and live abroad for a while. Um, some of them will stay abroad, but some of them will come back and, and, and be much the richer for, for experiences overseas. Now, our education system needs to prepare our students to live in that world where they will secure employment in other countries and travel the world. Uh, the problem is that if we head towards a much more localised education system where they learn about the local mutton birds, for example, instead of the continents and, the, and the, the, the whole geopolitical setup of the world, then they'll be less well prepared than they should be. That's not to say, of course, that they shouldn't learn about local things as well. Of, co- of course, there's room to do that. Uh, but w- we shouldn't be satisfied with a system that only does that, that's for sure. What are the chances that the government and the Ministry of Education will actually follow the recommendations from this document? Well, that's hard to say. A lot depends on the public response. We've already seen the government backpedalling on a number of initiatives. For example, it's hate speech legislation, uh, possibly some of the elements of Three Waters, although that remains up in the air. Uh, It depends on how much pushback they get, I would say, at this stage. As far as I can tell, they're they're running out of political capital and they're they're not likely to want to push anything too hard that will cost them much more in that regard. So if people are disturbed by these ideas, then it's probably not a bad idea for them to write to their their MP or to the Minister for Education and, and tell them so. But in a way, the document just follows in follows on from the debate we had last year as a result of the Listener 7 letter. Um, Well, well, you see, that was such an unfortunate thing because it just ruins the whole opportunity to talk about this properly. And there are substantive things to talk about here. Look, you know, Mataranga Māori is a very interesting source of knowledge and it is fundamentally different in some ways not in all ways because it's a human source of knowledge but it's, it's in a lot of ways it's very different from what we might call the western worldview or, or something like that now if we were able to set it up as its own thing and not try to pretend that it can be shoehorned into the curriculum as it, as it is but to have its own representation then that could be an interesting way ahead where, yes, we want all of our young people to learn the disciplines of the world so that they're equipped to live and work anywhere. At the same time, to understand at least elements of, and for those who really want to go deeply into it, a great deal more than just elements of Mataranga Māori, because then we're able to have a conversation as a country in good faith that can actually take us forward and, and perhaps over time 
we end up with a knowledge system that integrates the best of both. Who knows? And that, that, that to me is the, the exciting prospect. But the prospect of that is killed when anybody who even says that these sources of knowledge are not just one and the same gets shouted down as, as racist. That, that is simply not yeah. a good way to conduct any kind of public discussion. Well, the intention of the letter writers and the listener, I believe, was just to make sure that we don't confuse science with other knowledge systems. That's right. Um, in the same same way, I mean, if, if Scandinavians uh, wanted to learn about um, the Vikings as some um, their ancestors and they wanted to learn about the culture, they wouldn't want to do that in a science class. They would probably do that in a history in class. In a history class or maybe a mythology study if they were going to go into the stories of that, that culture. And, you know, so, so one of the problems here, I think, is that New Zealand teachers and, in fact, even... Even scientists themselves often don't understand deeply the philosophy of science or the or the epistemic structure of science, and so they're not well equipped to have this discussion to 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 figure out the ways in which it differs from other worldviews and other ways of structuring knowledge. Why is that? Well, I don't think they're taught it at uh, school. Well, they're certainly not sy systematically taught it at school, and. and all too seldom at university either. If you do a degree in science, in biology or chemistry or physics, then you'll learn about the, the domains of those sciences. You'll learn about the methods of inquiry, so how you run experiments and the way in which you test theories in those, in those disciplines. But certainly you can get through a science degree not having done any real philosophy of science. So in the absence of that... It, it might be hard to for many scientists to even describe why science is a, a particularly powerful method of, of testing ideas about the natural world. Mm. I think it's not just limited to science. I would probably say the same about the social sciences as well. Right. I think I'm sure you're right. I mean, one of the things that I noticed again and again about um, economists, for example, is that they don't know the history of their own subject. Yeah. So they're very good at calculating formulas and uh, drawing graphs, but they wouldn't know any economist by name from two or three hundred years ago, which I think is a shame because if you don't know the history of your subject, you're bound to repeat some past mistakes. Well, that's true. So the history of the history of a discipline is something that I would agree that any economist or scientist or, or historian, there's a history to the study of history. You know, we should know these things. It should be part and parcel of learning a discipline is learning its history. And that that raises the question of what, what the philosophy of its epistemic methods is. What, what, what are the processes by which it reveals new knowledge or tests knowledge? And if we understand that, then we can start to have much more mature and nuanced conversations about how different knowledge systems differ. But none of that seems to be present in the document we're talking about. There is no hint of an awareness of um, epistemology. No. There is no hint of um, um, awareness of actually basic aspects of New Zealand history. It's all very stylized and really a caricature of history. Yes, and it's it, it's it, it seems to go out of its way to, to denigrate the, the knowledge that our, our young people most need to thrive in the world. That, that's why I react so strongly against it. So ultimately, this is a very political document, uh -huh. and it is a document influenced by some theories actually originating not in New Zealand, but in the US. 
Well, you're speaking of critical race yes. theory. Yes, that's that's right. So it now, imports now, these I'll, foreign. Narratives. By the way, I would hesitate to use the term theory in relation to that. There's no theory. There is no real theory. It's activism. It's, it, that's right. It's a it's a political motivation. It's not a, a knowledge motivation. And if it was a real theory, there would be methods of testing it, and there would be a way of conceivably falsifying it. That that would be a scientific theory at any rate, um, as Karl Popper said, if a theory is not in, th- in principle falsifiable, it's not a viable theory. And one of the things about critical race theory is that it is absolutely not falsifiable and, and any questioning of it is itself taken as evidence for the veracity of critical race theory. So, so for example, if as a white person you criticise it, you are demonstrating your white privilege or your white fr- fragility thereby fulfilling the predictions of critical race theory. In other words, by questioning it, you're fulfilling its predictions. If as a non-white person you similarly question it, you're demonstrating internalised racism and therefore also demonstrating its, its tenets. So there, there is no way to, to, criti- to critique it on its own terms. Mm. Therefore, it is not a valid theory. So if I understand you correctly, you would say that because of our lack of understanding of the basics of science, of dealing with these questions, we are uniquely vulnerable to yeah. these um, international um, developments and influences that actually shouldn't have any bearing on our own local situation. Well, that, that's right, yeah. Now, you know, critical race theory, once imported into, into New Zealand, has been adapted to local conditions, of course. So uh, a lot of the current discourse about the treaty is informed by critical race theory and, and, and thereby uh, sort of gains a New Zealand context. But, but you're perfectly right, of course. It, it came out, first of all, for, most recently from America. Its original background is European, the, the, the Frankfurt School of, um, of Critical Theory, uh, which was, I, I believe... Uh, a movement to uh, salvage Marxism after the working classes of Europe failed to revolt. Uh, and so rather than relying on the working classes anymore, the, these theorists decided to uh, look to other identity groups to, uh, to enact the revolution. The tragedy in all of this is, of course, that, um, as you said before, first of all, no one would deny that uh, there are past injustices. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all want all students, regardless of race, ethnicity, social background, to succeed. Yep. So there is no disagreement really on any of that. And yet what the government is trying to do with documents like this one and with its practical policies is actually shifting us further away from that ideal. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. If we, if we don't understand the reason or the reasons why Māori students on average are not doing as well as, as students from other backgrounds, then we're not in a good position to do anything about it. So the first thing we need to do is look at the data and look at the analyses that tell us what the real problem is or what the problems may be, and then we'd be in a much better position to start to address them. And of course, we would like to make the socioeconomic gradient and educational achievement as shallow as possible. In other words, we would like students from all backgrounds to do equally well. Uh, of course, we don't want to accomplish that by pulling down the top end, but by lifting up the bottom end. And, and that's an important part of that as well. 
So it's not just equality for its own sake, but uh, equality and excellence is what we're looking for. And yet even talking about it is difficult. We just joked before we started uh, this podcast, uh, this is the one that might get us cancelled, of course, <laughs> these days, because you are as white as I am. Unfortunately, we are also both males, um, and we're probably well, not quite old yet, but we're, we're getting we're, we're old adjacent, at least. Yes. We are, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> so um, with that background as white old males, or almost old males, we are at danger here yeah, of being yeah. accused of that. Well, that's right, but of course we can't count out of that. That, that would be a catastrophe if everybody just shut their mouths because they, they were frightened of being cancelled. So but it does lead to that. It because can do. you are self-censoring then because you know that as soon as you start to raise your voice in a debate like this, even with the best intentions, which I think we both have, yeah. um, you might be caricatured and your views might be caricatured and just based on your personality. They can be taken out of context. And of course, again, to go to that universalist principle it shouldn't of course matter what the color of our skin is what our sex is or how old we are what should matter is what we say and we put things out there and people of course are free to disagree and to argue back and to tell us why we're wrong and then we can respond in kind but if we have this culture in which you can be cancelled especially if you have certain demographic characteristics for putting forward ideas then that is at least as bad as legal restrictions on free speech because in the end the effect is possibly even worse. It leads to people self-censoring and being shut down and that's no way to move ahead. And, and so our education system of all places should be promoting openness about ideas and talking through ideas in good faith. If that is the risk, then that is an even greater reason to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us on this podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Oliver. Uh, uh, you'll always get that from me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's why you're here. Thank you all for listening. And uh, I think this is a debate that is important, that will be with us for the foreseeable future. And I'm sure we'll talk about it again. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.